earlier this year, we did a couple of programs looking back at the invasion of Iraq 20 years on, and uh, one of the conversations I had was with Robert Kaplan, who was a foreign correspondent for The Atlantic for over 30 years. Now, he initially supported the invasion, but when he realised what a mistake it was, he it got him thinking, deeply thinking, about the nature of tragedy and how it intersects with, of all things, foreign policy. It was a fascinating encounter, so I was delighted to discover that Robert has written another book. It takes a long lens to explore the past and future of the region he calls the Greater Middle East. It's called The Loom of Time, between empire and anarchy, from the Mediterranean to China. Robert, it's a pleasure to have you back with us. Can you start by telling us a bit about your approach to the book? Because it's, a, it's an odd hybrid of history, travel, and memoir. Uh, yes, it's a pleasure to be back. Um, it's the kind of book that nobody writes anymore. You know, decades ago, people were generalists. They weren't in their narrow cubby holes of, uh, of you know, heavily credentialed specialists. And it's, it's a generalist book because, as you say, it's about travel, memoir, journalism, uh, geography, and much else. And it blends it all in, into one narrative about a region that stretches literally from the Eastern Mediterranean all the way to the confines of China. Um, it's not a book about political science, but it includes political science. And not only do I use a complete, an old-fashioned, completely different genre than all modern journalists use, um, you know, my themes are different. Um, for, for the Western media, the Middle East is about democracy versus authoritarianism. That's not my theme. My theme here is empire versus anarchy. Empire on one extreme, the legacy of imperialism, not just of Western imperialism, but of the indigenous Middle Eastern empires. And the, the goal throughout the book is to try to identify a tenuous middle ground where people can live in dignity in relatively stable governments, whether they be democratic or not. Well, going to move towards anarchy, but let's focus first, as you do, on empire. Why is it so central to your thesis? Because the Middle East has essentially been governed by empires going back to late antiquity and the early medieval age. Uh, there was the Umayyad Empire based in what is now Syria that stretched all the way from Morocco in the West to the Indian subcontinent in the East. Uh, you know, a quarter of the circumference of the earth. Then there was the Abbasid Empire, based in what is today Iraq, that also governed basically the same area, a vast area, including the whole greater Middle East. Then there were the Fatimids and the Hafsids, and of course, 400 years of Ottoman Turkish imperial rule that stretched from Algeria in the West, again, 
all the way to near the borders of the Indian subcontinent. The West, in the form of British and French colonialism, only came in in you know in modern times in the late 19th and early 20th century. So when I talk about the legacy of empire in this book, it's not particularly about the legacy of the West only. We're all quite familiar with the devastating consequences of colonial powers drawing their strange maps on Africa, imposing their maps on Africa. But of course, it was even worse in the Middle East, wasn't it? Well, uh, the places in the Middle East that I identify as the most unstable, uh, you know, the most unnatural forms of rule in terms of abject tyranny, were places that were vague geographical expressions only um, that the British and French essentially cobbled together into states. And because the states were so artificial, it took an extra degree of tyranny in order to hold them together. Of course, I'm talking about Syria and Iraq which, as I said, were vague geographical expressions, unlike Egypt or Tunisia, for example, which were age-old clusters of civilization that had state identities separate from Islam. Uh, Tunisia has been a natural state since Roman times, under Carthaginians, under Vandals, under Hafsids, under many others. Uh, the same with Egypt, with Nile Valley civilization. Civilization. There's nothing artificial about Tunisia and Egypt, and that's why their forms of tyranny were always on a lower level, a less extreme level than the forms of tyranny in Libya, Syria, and Iraq, which, because they were artificial, as I said, required an extra dose of tyranny to hold them together. Robert, you mentioned earlier that there's, the, this area is usually seen as an ongoing contest between democracy and authoritarianism, and you think that's absolutely grossly oversimple. Uh, yes, I would say it's it's it because when you interview people throughout the region, as I did over years and decades, um, what people really want is they want some stability in their lives. They do, and they want some freedom in their lives. And the truth is that the only places in the Middle East that have come up with a fair degree of personal freedoms and a fair degree of stability have not been democracies, which has failed across the Middle East, as we know from the Arab Spring, but in what I call the consultative monarchical regimes of Morocco, Jordan, and Oman, where because they're their kingships or sultanates, essentially, um, there's natural legitimacy for their rulers. And because there is natural legitimacy, there doesn't need to be the same level of tyranny. Let's, let's look at Turkey, because I find this a particularly interesting case study, having been a great admirer all my life of Ataturk. And uh, now, of course, we have to deal with a rather different gentleman in uh, Erdogan. So talk to me about Turkey. Um, Turkey is a place where empire, where imperialism is basically well thought of. 
because people take pride in the Ottoman Empire, which again, not only ruled for 400 years in the Middle East, but the Middle East has not come up with a solution yet to the demise of the Ottoman Empire, which is why the Middle East has been so unstable over the decades. Turkey for the last 20 years has been ruled by Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is who is you know what we'd call in a, a liberal democrat he was elected democratically re-elected democratically but rules like an autocrat uh to such a degree that i found it sometimes difficult to get people to talk on the record for me you know people would say to me um imagine if donald trump had been president of the united states for 20 years what would be the state of washington's institutions the justice department the cia the State Department, and so forth. Well, that's the situation in Turkey. He's been in power so long that he's essentially whittled away and eroded, you know, normal democratic, bureaucratic institutions of power. Well, going back to Ataturk, you see him as a complicated figure, but you said he went too far in his secularization of the country, which, of course, the current regime is trying to reverse. Yes, uh, this is the other extreme from Ataturk. Remember, when Ataturk came into power, the Islamic Sultanate had collapsed because of its defeat in World War One on the side of the uh, on the side of the Germans and Austrians and others. So Ataturk but really dramatically moved Turkey so far into a Western orbit. He changed the alphabet. He tore the, tore the hijab off women's faces. Uh, he changed the calendar and many other things. It was very much not just a political revolution, but something that's actually quite rare in the history of politics. It was a cultural revolution. One of the themes in my chapter on Turkey is that Ataturk seems to have gone too far. And there has been a movement starting in the 1960s, bringing Turkey gradually back towards a more uh, Islamic orientation. It started in, in the 1980 coup. It continued in a big way under Turgut Özal, who is a prime minister of Turkey and then president for about 12 years from the mid, early mid-1980s to the early mid-1990s when he died. But Özal was a transitional figure. There has been no Turkish leader as radical and as important as the one we have now, Erdogan. And as you say, it'll be interesting to see uh, whether Turkey moves back to secularisation after Erdogan. Let's uh, now go to Iran. It's been a year since the the tragic death of that young woman at the hands of uh, of the religious police, the morality police. Is Iran at a a country at crossroads? I think it is. In fact, if you read my book, the most optimistic chapter looking forward is on Iran. Because, um, you know, I tell people, readers, to use their imagination. 
when the Shah was in power, it was impossible to imagine anything beyond him. And then when the Ayatollahs have been in power the last 40 years or so, um, it's been impossible to imagine anything beyond their rule. But I'm asking readers to use their imagination. I think the current regime, the current clerical regime, is sort of in a very tired calcified Brezhnev state, uh, in a reference to, to the last years of the Soviet Union. Um, think of Iran today as a country uh, ruled by a bunch of North Koreans, but the mass of the people are South Koreans. In other words, the regime rests on a very narrow, brittle base of support. And it's also a gerontocracy, isn't it? And the uh, current Supreme Leader is 84, my age, and in very poor health. Yes, yes. And, uh, and you, know, you know, these things, you know, there are grand movements in history, but they often take a specific event to really trigger them. And one specific event that might happen you know, would be the death of the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, um, that leads to a leadership crisis and which brings people out into the street. Um, it's possible that the regime has already secretly picked a new leader, you know, so that there's a smooth transition, but it's very difficult to say. Um, in other words, all I'm saying is don't be cynical about Iran's future. Iran is 85 million highly educated, well-urbanized people. If you were to have a, a, a real um, dramatic political change in Iran, that would bring 85 million people into the global economy, and they would be very dynamic. Well, we've seen their willingness to go into the streets to protest in, the, in quite recent times. Now, you make an interesting suggestion that a new Iran could also lead to a new Iraq. How so? Yeah, uh, yes, I do. If you, you know, Iraq, since the U.S. invasion, uh, you know, 20 years ago, um, has been what we call very unstable, dysfunctional, unruly democracy, where it's technically democratic, technically there are elections, and, and leaders change and they retire. But there's basically no security in the country. You could be kidnapped at the airport um, and disappear. You know, it's a very uncivil society. And mainly what I argue is that the main reason for this, not the only reason, but a main reason is the interference of Iran in the affairs of Iraq, supporting militias, uh, you know, intimidating people, carrying out killings, etc. If you were to have a new regime in Iran that would focus more on rebuilding the country internally, it could provide a breathing space for Iraq. My guest is Robert Kaplan, and we're talking about his uh, his new book, The Loom of Time, Between Empire and Anarchy, From the Mediterranean to China. Now I think it's the appropriate time to talk about Saudi, because it's a, a very, very different story. Yes, Saudi Arabia is a country that has been ruled by the same family for about 100 years. 
Um, and there have been about half a dozen or you know seven or eight leadership changes during the past hundred years. And they've all gone smoothly. Even with the assassination of King Faisal in 1975, the family got together and within 48 hours, there was a new ruler, King Khalid. Um, all of these rulers have been what I'd call moderate conservatives, not particularly dynamic until the present one who's in his own category, but basically a very stable regime that's kept things orderly despite the upheaval of the oil age, which really came about in the 1970s with the quadrupling and even more of the oil price that turned Saudi society upside down, essentially. So what the Saudis said to me in one interview after another is, look, we've had stability, successful leadership changes. We now have you know, more personal freedoms for women and other kinds of personal freedoms. Who are you in the West to tell us how we should be ruled? Um, after all, in every country of the Arab Spring, Tunisia, Yemen, Libya, Syria, uh, and, uh, and on and on, it's been an absolute violent disaster. Let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the current Crown Prince. You say that MBS had a role model in Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew, and the second I read that, I could see what you meant. Yes. Uh, see, Lee Kuan Yew is somebody who makes Western liberals very uneasy because he showed that you could have pro economic progress, social progress, personal freedoms, you know, a really successful country with a very high quality of life, which was not necessarily, at least in the early years and decades, was not necessarily democratic. And this makes Western liberals very uneasy because it indicates that democracy may not be the last word in human political development. And what MBS has done is He's looking not towards Václav Havel, the former Czech ruler, or Nelson Mandela, the late um, South African ruler. Those people are, are avatars of Western liberals, uh, you know, Havel and Mandela. He's looking to Lee Kuan Yew uh, in terms of, of a form of technocratic efficient administration that allows people a significant degree of personal freedoms, but at the end of the day is not democratic, and at the end of the day will ruthlessly oppress people who, who seem to want to change the regime. Is it going to work in the long term? I don't know. I end my chapter comparing MBS to the personage in Greek mythology, uh, Icarus, who, who made wings of wax and flew too close to the sun, and the, and the wax wings melted and Icarus tumbled into the sea. Because the reason uh, you know, I bring up this comparison with Icarus is because MBS seems to want it all. He wants a dynamic, entrepreneurial, um, innovative society, but he also wants absolute political control, ruthless political control. And I raise the point that he may not be able to have both, 
because the kind of entrepreneurial society he's aiming for requires a dose of freedom, which he has not been willing to give his people. Now, let's make a dramatic change and go to Afghanistan. You suggest it could have a very important role to play in the new geopolitical landscape. Yes, um, it's it's ironic. Af- the the United States uh, and its allies were in Afghanistan for twenty years, but none of them have a real naked self interest in Afghanistan. The Chinese are after minerals and pipelines in Afghanistan. The same with the Pakistanis. The same with the Indians. That all these powers have real national interests in Afghanistan, while the Western powers, which had o- invaded and occupied it for two decades, have none. But if you look, if you know, if if you look ahead in you know, in terms of geopolitics, you know, you can see a network of pipelines, oil and gas, crisscrossing Afghanistan, where Afghanistan would be part of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, which is sort of a modern Silk Road, you know, the East India Company in reverse, going from going from east to west rather than from west to east. What about Russia? It's been a big player in the in the region, but uh, its attention, of course, is currently focused elsewhere. Will it remain influential? Um, I think the longer that the Ukraine war goes on, the less able Russia will be to project power in places like the Caucasus, the Middle East, the Russian Far East, um, because it's expending so much economic capital, and the and more importantly, the attention of its leadership is so focused on Ukraine that Russia becomes a weaker and weaker imperial power. It seems the opposite, that Russia is trying to keep Ukraine to protect its empire. That's true. But the irony is that the longer it stays fighting in in Ukraine, the weaker it becomes. This is an important question. Robert, you argue that we need to, uh, well, stop pining for democracy in the Middle East. But how do we engage with countries where freedom and human rights are so restricted? This, well, it seems it will be a key conundrum for Western countries going forward. I think we disaggregate, we separate the legalistic aspect of of democracy with regular democratic elections, and we'd separate that from human rights. We can have a very robust human rights policy and reward and punish leaderships depending upon their um, ability to protect minorities, to uh, to allow people to express their views. We can have that robust human rights policy without demanding people hold elections. And look at how we deal with a place like Oman or Morocco, which of course are not perfect, as we've seen with the Moroccan regime's um, response to the earthquake. They're not perfect, but they do allow a great measure of personal freedoms of debate, etc. And yet they're not democratic. Before I let you go, why do you cite Tolstoy? Ah, yes. 
Uh, in the, the latter part of Tolstoy's novel, War and Peace, he writes about a Count Raspachin, who is able analytically to foresee that Napoleon would take Moscow and Moscow would burn or be deserted. But because he could never actually imagine such an event taking place, he would count Respachin was just as surprised and uh, and devastated by the eventual collapse of Moscow, which he had analytically predicted, but he couldn't actually imagine. So what I'm exhorting readers to do is to, it's not enough to analyze, you have to use your imagination. And on that note, I have to thank you very much for coming back to the program. My guest has been Robert D. Kaplan, who's the Robert Strauss Hupe Chair in Geopolitics at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. And we've been, uh, well, just scratching the surface of his latest book, The Loom of Time Between Empire and Anarchy, From the Mediterranean to China, published by Penguin Random House. And I encourage you to go back and listen to our conversation with Robert earlier in the year about the Iraq war. And we'll put a link to that in the program. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.